You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Beyond the Headlines with your host, veteran journalist Darren Nichols. Welcome to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Darren Nichols. Every city has a place to ball. In New York, it's Rucker Park. In Cali, right now, it's the Drew League that's hot. In D.C., it's Berry Farms. And now, up the road, you got the Moneyball League. But if you're a ball player, if you're any kind of ball player here, the Mecca is St. Cecilia. And if you are a ball player, you don't even call it St. Cecilia. You call it the Saint. Our guest today has lived it. Is our guest today is Sam Washington Jr., the son of leg- the legend Sam Washington, who founded the Sa- Saint in 1968, and he's here to discuss the history of the Saint that will debut in a documentary next week. And welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Darren. So. We are going to talk a little bit about The Saint and the documentary. Tell me a little bit about the documentary and what can people expect to hear and see um, with this documentary? Okay. First of all, the documentary is going to be next Saturday, September 28th at the Old Millennium Theater, which is now Triumph Church, right in Southfield, on J.L. Hudson Drive. Actually, the address is 15600. Doors were open at 11.45 a.m., and then we will start showing the actual um, documentary at 12.30. Um, I don't really know where to begin to tell this story because basically it's something that, uh, like Darren alluded to at the start of the show, uh, Every not every city, but... A lot of cities have a go-to place where all the ballers play. St. Cecilia, which was founded by my dad in uh, 68, just took off. Um, It wasn't planned. It was shortly after the Detroit riots in 67. And, you know, we, uh, we, we, my brothers and I and sister and family, we were fortunate enough to stay right across the street from St. Cecilia. Um, There was a curfew you know, for kids. And, you know, we were just bored. It was hot, didn't have anything to do. So my dad said, you know what, get out of my hair, guys. You know, you're getting on my nerves. I'm going to open up the gym, go in there and blow off some steam. And, you know, we gladly did so. And when you open the doors of St. Cecilia through the front and the back and you're in the gym, you can, it just echoes throughout the whole neighborhood. And kids start coming, hey, I want to play, I want to play, and, you know, things of that nature. Now, uh, moving forward, there was no organized high school basketball in the city of Detroit. My dad actually had to go to court up in Lansing and fight to have a, a summer basketball league for high school. Back then, you think uh, Detroit was like one of the largest uh, cities in the, in the country. I think it was like either fifth or fourth. And we had over 20, 23 Detroit public schools. We had Detroit Catholic schools as well, 
and population was booming, the economy was was booming, and there was like talent in every city high school. I mean, any given team, there's three or four guys that can flat out play and definitely can play D1 ball. So the reputation just started growing. And then, ironically, uh, Piston great NFL, NBA, excuse me, Hall of Famer Dave Bing was holding out his contract from the Detroit Pistons. He and my dad, they, they met, and Dave needed a place to work out. So my dad said, Dave, I got a gym. You can come work out at, at my gym at St. Cecilia. And when Dave Bing came to St. Cecilia, word got out that, uh, you know, Dave Bing in uh, Detroit Piston great was working out, and then he brought some of his teammates to work out. And then, you know, we developed, you know, my dad developed a um, an open league. Man, it was so much talent. It was just crazy, and it just took off. You know, every summer we, from there, we had guys, multiple guys going from the um, from college to the NBA, and it just became a fraternity. It was the where the who's who in terms of where you know what what kids played. Yeah, and talk talk about some of the players that came through there. I mean, you know, I remember being a kid, and you know, being about seven years old and seeing George Gervin. Right. And, you know, I'm sitting in the crowd and, you know, I'm saying, hey, hey, uh, George, I need you to dunk in the, in the layup line. And he he dunk in the layup line. He, nice man. He, he point and say something to me or whatever. Yeah. You know, um, you're talking about Earl Curitan. You're talking about Terry Tyler. You're talking about uh, Isaiah Magic, D.C., Steve Smith. You can go on and on. Chris, Chris Weber. You can go yes. on and on and on. Yes. Um, I mean, you're talking about. Bernard King, you're talking about some of the best of the best came to the same. What does that mean? I mean, you you said you said it right there yourself. It's just to put it in words, it was just phenomenal because um a lot of kids in the city, they couldn't afford to go see a piston play, you know, at the time down the Cobo Hall, you know, and then the Silver Dome. And when you have uh guys with with talent like this from your own city, in the city during the summertime playing uh, high-caliber basketball because, Darren, check this out. It was guys not in the NBA playing at St. Cecilia was just as good, even better than some guys in the NBA. That's how talented it was. Curtis Jones. I mean. Perfect example. Um, Carlos Rogers went with the Detroit Northwesterns about seven feet tall, played in the NBA. He told me just just, uh, maybe a year or so ago, he said, Sam, when I was in the NBA, when I came home during the summertime and played at the Saint, he said, I got in shape playing in the NBA just so when I came to the Saint to see in the summertime, I wouldn't get embarrassed. (laughs) That's how talented it was. You know, unbelievable. And like I said, and the guys from Detroit, it was at least a dozen every summer that played in the NBA, always would come back to Detroit and play at St. Cecilia. You know, kids, anybody can walk up to them, talk to them, shake their hand, get advice. And that's what I meant by it became a fraternity, still is. Magic Johnson, for example, they were saying, Magic, you're the best in East Lansing, you're the best in Lansing. In order for you to prove where you are, where your skills are, you got to go to the Saint and play. And that's what he did. And lo and behold, when he came to the Saint, 
He put on the show. He could play. Yeah. I mean, I remember in in the later years, um, for whatever reason, uh, Lindsey Hunter was playing. Right. And I think K2 Davis was going off that game. Mm-hmm. And I think Lindsey took a little soft at first, you know, and guys in the crowd, as they usually do, they got on him. Right. Right. And, and he thought he was coming in just to get a little workout in. Right. <laughs> and he found out real quick, this is a real game. <laughs> and by the end of the game, uh, I think Lindsey made about 10 threes in a row and he ended up with 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. and so that shows you the level that 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 other guys, because, again, K2 Davis had a great career, um, went to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Put them in the Sweet Sixteen, but you know, unless you know all of that, he's just a regular guy in the gym, right? Yeah. I know it because I watched it, and, and I know who K Two Davis is, right? Exactly. But you know, if you're a Lindsey Hunter, well, you might not know who K Two Davis is. Well, he found out real quick. Real quick, I got to put my real game back on, and, <laughs> and, and he made about ten threes in a row. You know, yeah, and that's what I meant by guys, even in the NBA from Detroit, they know. And they knew they had to be ready to play down at the Saint in the summertime because it was just guys that just that's all they lived for, you know, to play at the Saint that could really hoop. You know, you call them play playground legends, if you will. But yeah, a lot of guys definitely that wasn't in the NBA could have easily made it to the NBA. Yeah. And so with the documentary, what what do you what are you what are you trying to show? I mean, obviously, you want to show the history of what happened with the Saint, But what do you want to leave people with um, when they're when they're watching the documentary? Well, see, the, um, the main thing is this. The Saint was more than just basketball. It was community thing. It brought people together. It brought people from all races. For example, um, Brother Rice, my alma mater was the first suburban school team to play at the Saint in the summer. So you think prior to my dad starting the Saint Cecilia League, it was a race riot. So the, the you know the city was separated, you know. So basketball, and when my dad opened up the doors, brought the community together. They brought the whites, the blacks, you know, all races together openly. You know, and that was that was very impactful. And it helped the community, you know, um it gave uh, the people in the community somewhere to go, somewhere to see games. Because my dad was like this, hey, if you want to play, want to have an opportunity to play, go ahead, son, go play, even even girls. And then once the reputation took off, Darren, you know, you, you're talking about coaches from all over the country coming. You know, you had Dick Vitale. When Detroit Pistons hired Dick Vitale, he didn't know anybody. He's from New Jersey. So, he, you know, he did his research, and everybody told him, hey, you want some players? You got to go to St. Cecilia and meet Sam Washington. And that's exactly what he did. Him and my Dick Vitale, my dad became very good friends. You know, uh, uh, my dad helped Dick uh, recruit Terry Durod, Earl Curitan, John Long, Terry Tyler. And, then, you know, they, they, had, they, they made it to the NCAA, you know, things of that nature. Um, legendary coach George Raveling would hang out at the St. Cecilia, you know. You know, I can go on and on. Stan Van Gunny, the ex-Piston uh, coach, would hang out there. I mean, coaches from all over. NCA was a little different then. Yeah. They wasn't didn't have so many rules and regulations because coaches then could come whenever whenever they wanted to to camp out to try to recruit. Right. And so how did how did the project come about and how long um, has it taken to put the, um, uh, the documentary together? Well, this is something I've been pondering, you know, for years. And every year, you know, uh, 
nothing would happen. So um, with this particular documentary, that's a good question. It it it, it won't tell the, the full story because it is, once I started doing this, uh, myself and Randy Henry, um, we came to realize this is huge, you know. Um, it, it would take more, more time, more funding, you know, to tell the full story. So this pretty much tells like the beginning, how my dad started it. Like I said earlier, how it impacted, you know, the community, how the reputation grew, um, from citywide to statewide to nation, nationwide, um, how, um, so many people were, um, benefited from being at St. Cecilia. Like I said, not just basketball players, but heck, you have doctors, lawyers, you know, uh, politicians that used to play and watch games at St. Cecilia, like Judge Mathis, you know, the legendary football coach Tony Dungy used to hang out up there. You know, I can go on and on. Benny Napoleon, the sheriff, you know, guys like that. Um, and then females. Females were involved with some great female players that uh, went on and went to college. Um, referees. There's a few referees that became, you know, and still are like legendary referees in the NBA, the NCAA, and things of that nature. So, we kind of like took it from the beginning, how it impacted the community um, shortly after the riots to like right after up to when my my father passed in 89. So what we kind of realized, okay, well, that's the story we're going to tell and what we want people to pull. Maybe somebody will see it like um, we're inviting the ESPN people, Fox Sport, you know, 30 for 30 people because we want them to come out and see it and say, okay, this is a story that needs to be told, not only here in Detroit but throughout the whole country. And then we can add the other components that we was unable to do. Okay. And so the saint is, as I've mentioned before, it's it's a part of it is Detroit in in a certain sense, particularly for the basketball community. And so talk about because you you did talk about it in in a little bit of sense of what the saint meant for Detroit. Um, and what it meant for the basketball community, because for me as a child, um, I can ve- I can recall very few Saturdays that I didn't go to the Saint, and I wasn't there all day. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the high school games, you know, you know, all afternoon, and then the pro am starts at you know five o'clock, and, and and so I'm there from twelve to you know eight nine o'clock at night, and mm-hmm. so. Talk talk a little bit about what the saint meant for Detroit because you know again it was a it was a safe haven in some respects because mm-hmm. it kept people off the street. Um, so talk talk a little bit about that. Well, well, you made a very good point because I hear that all the time about how long you would stay at the saint, and I'm going to tell you why you stayed so long at the saint because you knew that you was going to see some great basketball all day long. And you knew if you got up and left your seat, come back, you, you wasn't going to find You can't get another seat. No. Absolutely. You know, especially like when uh, like a George Gervin is in town. See, we didn't have to think about it. We didn't have social media back then. And that's another problem, if you will, that we had putting this documentary together because we didn't have a lot of footage from back then. Right. You know, we, we just didn't do it. You know, we just, you know, we see all these athletes and we just, hey, go up to them, shake the hand. You know, it wasn't a lot of footage in social media like we had now. So what it meant also was that, you know, because you develop relationships, you know, you know, from being up there. Um, long time, long time, long term relationships, you know, that people develop. I mean, you can do anything up there. And, you know, like, 
Uh, we didn't have cell phones. So like you just said, you stayed there all day. Your, your parents knew where you were. You know, you were in good hands. You know, good good environment is safe because my dad had rules. No swearing, no fighting. You know, if you do, then you, you're out of here. You know, things of that nature. And everybody respected him. You know, he sat by the door in the back. When you come up the steps, first person you see is him, my Absolutely. dad. And I was like wondering. I said, Dad, why you always sit at the steps back here? He said, because... Everybody that walked in this gym, he would, he would acknowledge, hey, how you doing? If he didn't know your name, he would fake it. Hey, big fella. You know, there he is. Mm-hmm. And because he said he wanted to greet everybody that came in because it meant a lot to him. Okay. And so how important was this documentary not only to just put out for people to see but to keep your dad's legacy alive? Um, talk to me a little bit about that and what that and what that will mean um, to preserving um, what your dad did for Detroit, because, you know, like you said, he came in at a very pivotal time in Detroit where everything was in a bit of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was very fractured. Um, and so how important is this documentary in terms of keeping his legacy alive? It's extremely important. As a matter of fact, you know, we're at the early stages of perhaps trying to make, you know, the St. Cecilia Gym a historical, you know, landmark because it means that much. Now, a lot has changed since then. You know, the schools closed, you know, and things of that nature. But um, it, it was really important and dear to me because everywhere I go just about, you know, I run into somebody, hey, or may recognize me or something, say, hey, Sam, you know, you know, I used to be at the same, I knew your dad, he did this for me, you know. My dad did a lot that, you know, most people don't even know. For example, he could pick up the phone and get a kid a full-ride scholarship just by picking up the phone to call a coach, you know, uh, without the coach even ever seeing that kid play. And one of the reasons the coaches would not say no is because if they really wanted a kid and – and my and they said no. Then they figured like, well, well, Sam's not gonna help me, you right? Know? So right. that it, that was that was very powerful. Um, and then another thing is like everybody knows about it: politicians, corporate CEOs, you name it. They know about it's it's boggling to me how I meet somebody, and they say, yeah, I used to be at the same. Like when I mentioned earlier, Tony Dungy, the NFL uh, coach and um, announcer. Now he's from Jackson, Michigan. He used to come up there, and you know, not on a regular basis, but he had heard about it all the way in Jackson at the time. He would come up there with uh, because he was going to the University of Minnesota. So a friend of mine named Mike Jones from Detroit Central went to yeah. Minnesota. They were roommates, so he would come up there with Mike. Right. You know, things of that nature. You know, when um, some of the NBA guys from Detroit would, would go to their respective NBA teams, like Earl Kirtan, he would bring back what Daryl Dawkins. You know, right. yeah, uh, Doctor J's been up there before. You know. And, you know, Derek Coleman would bring some of his uh, uh, colleagues on the NBA team. It's, it's, it's just mind-boggling. Um, then entertainers would play up there, Marvin Gaye. I mean, one time I went, my father's office was downstairs. Uh, I needed some money. So I go downstairs to his office, and I, I, seen, I saw somebody changing their clothes with their head down, but I didn't pay attention. I, I wanted to get, get some money for my dad and get out of there. Right. And as soon as I walk in the office, my dad goes, Hey, Sam, didn't you see Marvin Gaye right there? I said, no, where? I looked. I said, man. He stood up and introduced me to Marvin. He hugged me. And so I was like, wow, Marvin Gaye, you know. Right. 
um, Mel Farr, you know, I can go on yeah, and absolutely. on, you know, of some of the entertainers that would come up there to play because at the time they had, um, <clears throat> like a, uh, some kind of celebrity basketball game. So Mel Farr, Marvin Gaye, <clears throat> excuse me, those guys, they was up there trying to get in shape, you know, to play. Right. And Marvin could play a little bit. Yeah, he could play a little bit, absolutely. Now, now, because it's not like some of the celebrity basketball games you see now. <coughs> Marvin Gaye could play a little bit, and he was friends with Dave Bing. Yeah, he was very good friends with Dave you Bing. Know. You know, so, you know. So he, Dave knew where to take him. Yeah, they, exactly. Dave knew exactly where to take him. Um, our ex-mayor, uh, Kwame Kilpatrick's dad used to play up there. He was a great player. Yes, and, you yes, know, Kwame came up there to play. Yes. You know, like I said, Judge Mathis used to hang out there. You know, Ed Gordon, the famous uh, radio personality, yeah. uh, would come up there. Uh, so I can go on and on. It's just phenomenal. And speaking of Bernard Kilpatrick, he was an All-American in college. He sure was. Uh, and he's in the Hall of Fame at Fair State. Right. Now, there's a lot of people who say a lot about him as a politician, but he still was a good ball player. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. He's, his you nickname know. was Killer. Killer. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> he had a killer jump shot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he was All-American. So, you know— you know, his son got his athletic ability, you know, from him, from his yeah. from his father. So, you know, people can say what you want about him as a mm -hmm. as a politician. But as a basketball player, he was he, he was, was one, one good basketball. player. Absolutely. And so. What <coughs> what is one of the things that people what is the one thing that you want people to know and to learn about the saint that they didn't know? That that's a very good question because I can go anywhere with that. But and um, actually, just that you know, the doors were always open for anybody to play. Um, race, creed, religion didn't didn't matter at Saint to say. Well, my dad, he's always like that. You know, if you want to play, he'll help you play. Also, there was a football component at Saint to say. See, my before the basketball started, there was football. So um, at the time. Um, me and my brothers, we were playing with the West Side Cubs. And it was so much talent over there. A lot of kids wasn't going to make the team and got cut. My dad, for some reason, had some kind of vision. Sure. So he was like, okay, you know what? I can take the kids that the West Side Cubs don't want and take them over to St. Cecilia. We start our own team. Right. And that's exactly what happened. And we were, we were great. The A, B, and C team every year. It'd be come down to Detroit, I mean, the uh, West Side Cubs or the Cecilville Beacons. We would okay. go at it. Okay. Uh, they would call it the Soul Bowl at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was phenomenal. We had tailgaters, cheerleaders, you name it. Um, so more than anything, what people really don't know as well is that, you know, um, my dad, he just, he wasn't afraid to do anything. I mean, whatever he wanted to do, he did. He was kind of like ahead of his time. To me, my dad started AAU in this area because he was taking kids out of town, New York, Boston, Ohio, that never passed eight miles. Absolutely. You know, with, didn't have to pay for anything. He would get raised money to take kids, you know, get a van or whatever and take kids out of town that, you know, never crossed eight miles. And that was a tremendous experience for them. And some of those kids, uh, where they're adults now, would come up and tell me, man, you know, it wasn't for your dad, you know. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be this. I wouldn't be that. So um, more than anything, he started AAU here in Detroit. And and one other thing is that he also put on the legendary Christmas tournament in 1983. Oh, you remember that? That put Kettering and Southwestern 
together, Mm -hmm. the judge against the Supreme Court. And they put about 6,000 people at UAD. Sure did. I think that is also – and he had to fight to get that because the state wanted to shut that down as well. Yeah, they still talk about that. The state and the BSL wanted to shut that down. Exactly. You know, then, you know, my dad was so popular, he – he was asked by the general manager and owner at the time for the Detroit Spirits to become the general manager himself and head coach. That is true. And guess what? They won the championship. Right. Tico Brown. <laughs> Tico Brown. Matter of fact, I I recruited Tico Brown because I was in, uh, going to school for two years, in my last two years of college in Anchorage, Alaska. Okay. And I ended up playing with Tico in the CBA there. And um, all right, when they folded I said, Dad, you got to take this kid. You got to see him play. He said, what's his name? I said, Tico Brown. He said, just send him send to Detroit. I'll pay for his you know, his flight. And he never left right. <laughs> when he yeah. got here. And he was a phenomenal player as well. Yeah. And, and what, 30, 30 years, 35 years later, he's still a legend in Detroit. Sure is. You say Tico Brown. Everybody you know, knows Everybody who that knows is. his yeah. name. And yeah, so, sure do. you know, I mean, you know, they talked about Javon Clark at Cass mm-hmm. and they called him Tico. Well, they called him Tico because he could shoot like they thought he could shoot like Tico, Tico Brown. Brown. Exactly. And so there, you know, there was a lot of things that were going mm-hmm. on like that. And so, you know, you talked about the hundreds or thousands of players that have come through the Saints. And, you know, we've kind of talked about all of them. But who are some of your favorites? That you oh, saw, man, and you don't have to put them in any any kind of order because I couldn't. <laughs> be, because I'm not going to ask who was your top five because you know that that would you know uh, ruffle some fe- feathers on some folks. Mm-hmm. But who were some of your favorites that you saw? Okay, well I got to start with the Ice Man, George Gervin. Got to start with him, um, Curtis Jones. He's 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 a legend that hardly nobody knows outside of Detroit. You know, if if he hadn't uh, passed early and you know ran into some a uh, little trouble, he could have been a phenomenal NBA player. Um, Tony Smith out of Saginaw, Terry Furlow from Flint, of course Chris Webber, Jalen Rose, Derek Coleman, um, Bernard King when he came down to play. You know, legendary NBA Hall of Famer from the New York Knicks. Uh, let's see. I can say, um, check this out. One summer, I had hurt my ankle. So I had a team. You know, my dad gave me a team. It's the house team. You right. know, the house yeah. always wins, right? Right. So I had Magic Johnson, Earl Curitan, John Long, Terry Durod, Isaiah Thomas, and uh, Greg Kelser all on my team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It, the place was packed, and like you said earlier, we were playing against a team. <clears throat> excuse me, Tico Brown was on the team that we were playing against. Okay, and they had another guy named uh, we call him Speedy Duran Walker. He's yeah. a scout for the Pistons. <clears throat> excuse me. Well, when the game started, they were all up in Isaiah and Magic's face, you know, playing hard as hell. You know, they they didn't really know who they were, and they they might they ran off like maybe four baskets in a row. I called timeout. And Isaiah looked at me and said, man, who are these guys? I said, he said, you didn't tell me I had to play like this. He said, okay, don't worry about it. Right. So the next five minutes, Magic and Isaiah, they put on the show. They had people going crazy in the stand. You know, I'm sitting there coaching that, you know. Right, so, yeah. You know, you got to love that. That was like, that was one of the best teams I ever coached, you know, and I, I'm proud of that. Okay. And so that kind of leads me to my next question. So 
A, what are some of your fondest memories um, uh, of of the saint? And what happens when you walk into the saint? Because it's so much a part of your DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there has to be something that that you feel when you walk into that place. Well, you know, whenever I'm even in the area, you know, I feel my I always feel my dad's presence. You know, he meant so much not only to my family but you know many many others. Um, and it's just sad now that things aren't like they used to be. You know, everything changes. You know, the economy's changed. You know, the pop. You know, population has changed. The neighborhoods even changed. There's sure. a lot of you know uh, blight around the area and things of that nature. So you know. I may be looking at some other alternatives, you know, coming down the line. But in terms of, you know, the impact and how I feel, I mean, it's just a great feeling. You know, uh, my dad's picture, not picture, but his name is still on the building in the front of the gym. You know, um, I used to call him the godfather of basketball. Um, I'm really proud of that. Um, everybody always has a story to tell about, you know, what, Saint to say, and my dad meant to them, which which is very very great feeling for now myself, but my brothers and sisters as well, and that's just something that you know nobody can change. You know sure. what happened there, the history in that building, the people that come through Saint, um, not only basketball players but you know females, and you know like I mentioned earlier, doctors, people that's gone on to be doctors, lawyers, you know, positive influences to to the community. It's just it's just fantastic of all the lives that it that it touched. Okay, and so talk talk to me a little bit about the Wall of Fame um, that's at the Saint, and some of obviously we know some of the legendary names that are mm-hmm. on there, but but talk a little bit about that and how that came about and what it means for people to come in and to be able to recognize the history that has gone on in the Saint. Well, well, the Wall of Flame, Fame was. Uh, was a brainstorm that I had because yeah, okay, you got the same, you got the legendary gym and you know everything, you know, you got the history, but I just wanted something for like the younger generation and people that perhaps never been in the saint but heard about it. When they come in, they could just feel like, mm, wow, you know, like it's kind of like the uh, the garden in Madison's uh, in Boston Garden or um, Madison Square Garden in New York, so. When people come in and see all these names on the wall, they they're just in awe, you know. He, you know, like oh, this person played here, this person played here. Well, I didn't know he played here. I remember that guy, and then I get, how come my name's not on the wall? Right, you know, of course. Um, uh, it's a guy named Marvin McIntyre. He is the manager of the group New Edition. Okay. Well, a couple summers ago, New Edition was at Shane Park, uh, getting ready to do a concert. Um, Derek Coleman knew the members of New Edition and also the manager from when he played with the New Jersey Nets. So um, the uh, Marvin McIntyre called Derek, you know, Derek, you know, um, um, I heard about this, you know, the, the legendary Jim Saint to say, man, I want to, I want to come down and you know look and take some pictures. This is the manager of New Edition, right? He's from New York. So Derek called me. He said, Sam, you know, um, um. If you're not busy, can can you come up to the Saint in about an hour? Meet me up there, you know, the manager for New Edition, and maybe some of the uh, members of New Edition want to come to the Saint, you know, because they heard about it. They want to just come up. I said, Yeah, man, yeah, sure. Lo and behold, when I um, 
about an hour later, I come up there, and then the manager from New Edition and a couple of New Edition singers, they were there. Okay. You know, opened the door. They was like in awe. I just couldn't believe it. So look at these names because Derek was bragging. Hey, man, you come to Detroit, you know, you got to come to my home at the site, man. You know, that's where the legends are, you know. And when they came up there, they just, wow. Same thing, Baron Davis, the uh, NBA great former player. Yes. When he was uh, injured uh, trying to make a comeback to, uh, to the NBA a few years ago, he came up to Detroit to um, run a, like a, a video commercial on some kind of product he was endorsing. And uh, his people called me and said, you know what, we need to, we, we want to do this commercial at the Legendary Saints and say, Jim, with, with Baron Davis. I said, okay. He didn't, Baron Davis was tripping when he saw all those names. He said, man, all these players from the Saint, man, well, I got to bring my, my boys from L.A. down here to play you guys. You know, just, just stories like that. Right, right. And how did it feel for you to, to live up to that legacy, to live up to what your father was doing and, and to be known um, as his son? Well, I, I don't even try, you know, because okay. there's no way I can live up to that, but by me having the same name, Sam Washington Jr., you know, it's really easy because, you know, when they hear my name, they identify me with my dad if they don't already know me because they know that name, Sam Washington. And when they put two and two together, then, you know, only thing I try to do is just emulate some of the things he did and my doors open for anybody. You know, even now I had suburban teams still come. They love coming there. And, you know, think about the areas like pretty much, you know, I heard um, statistics that, you know, that zip code is one of the worst zip codes in, in Detroit, you know. Okay. And you still got teams from the suburbs coming out there feeling, you know, willingly, you know, feel safe. There's no problems and things of that nature. So as long as I can uh, keep doors open, if not there, you know, wherever else I may go, you know, and uh, keep being um, making a difference in the community, then that's my passion. Okay. And the pro-am, I mean— Will the program ever come back to the same? Because that's what everybody kind of wants to know, and they're yearning to have that back. And I know you mm-hmm. can't turn back the hands of time, mm-hmm. right? You can't make 2019, 1989. Right. I, I certainly understand that. But can and will the program come back to the same? And is that something that you want to do? Or is it just it's had its course? And it's it's had its courses run its time out and it's time for someone else to do it. I kinda like well, the the money ball, my boy uh, Desmond Ferguson out out in Lansing, he's kinda like taking that torch, yes. if you will, because the type of league that he has kind of patterns after, you know, Saint Cecilia Absolutely. because he has you know, the better players in my opinion. But see things what what's really changed is the fact that now NBA, every NBA team have their own practice facility. Right. See, back then they didn't. Yeah. They didn't have anywhere to play during the summertime. So and then they're making all this millions of dollars of money. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's a different mindset now. They'd rather work out there, you know, in that type of environment. We got the trainer there, you know, and things of that nature. And then the, uh, the better D1 college players from Detroit, when they go to their respective schools, especially the ones that go out of town, their coach don't want them to come back and play too much. You right. know, they may come and make a cameo, you know, but then boom, they're right back at their at their schools. So, you know, that that's what I'm up against. And also AAU. See the better players and for high school too, they're they're traveling all the yeah, time. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. So now 
And Saint Cecilia is not the only game in the town, if you will. Not everybody wants to have a Saint Cecilia, but so. But my goal is that you know what? That's fine. Let me focus on the young kids. See, I'm I'm like everybody can you know get with an All American, All State, you know, ride that coat. But what about the the JV kids that's coming up? You know, you may have a growth spurt. You know, get let's give them a chance. You right. know, because in high school especially, you never know. And then the other guys that's still around that still play in terms of a pro am level, they they kind of you know play in different leagues. Everybody, like I said, want to have a league now, so and that's that's fine. I feel that anywhere there's a league in the city, they're copying off of Saint Cecilia. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So before we get out of here, um, share your final thoughts on everything that we have talked about um, today, and. Um, Remind folks again about the premiere um, mm-hmm. of the documentary. Okay, yeah. I just want to, you know, to in, in close, I want to invite everybody to, you know, come out to the documentary uh, next Saturday, uh, September 28th. Doors open at 11.45 a.m. This is a story that must be told um, and it must be preserved. It's a lot of history, you know, that took place at, at the St. What you're going to see is like from the beginning to when my dad started around 67 up until, you know, around after he passed 89. It's too much to pull, put together at one time. This will give everybody a taste and, and reminder. Hey, you know what? We're all in this together. We're going to make this happen so we can blow it up, put it on the 30 for 30 uh, ESPN so the whole nation can see this, you know, this leg, uh, legendary gem and the, impact that it had on not only the community but in the NBA, the NCAA with the coaches and things of that nature and also our community. All right. Well, thank you, Sam. I appreciate you coming on. And, you know, certainly the Saint uh, is a place that uh, holds is very near and dear to us, um, a place where my dad coached, uh, a place where, Absolutely. you know, a, a place where I played. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll share my my basketball, my one, well, one of my stories is that we played Northern uh, mm-hmm. when I was a sophomore. I was coming into my sophomore year and they were seniors. So Lorenzo Neely kept letting me go by him and going, <laughs> going straight into D.C. And he just kept swatting at the half court and, you know, Lorenzo got okay. five straight plays, you know. But, again, you know, guy lets me go to the basket. I'm a, I'm a ball player. You're going <laughs> to let me go to the basket. I'm not going to be scared of the big fella. Right. The big fella swatted five of my shots and, and sent it straight to half court. And Lorenzo made five straight layups. Which I see Lorenzo. <laughs> you know, which is which was a lesson that I had to learn as a basketball mm-hmm. player. Well, you know, and, you know, obviously I'd seen Derek Coleman play. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a lesson you know, I had to learn, and quite frankly, I was the only one that was that wasn't scared to take a shot. <laughs> I, I kept passing the ball to other guys, and they pass it back to me. Yeah, uh, that means I got to do something. <laughs> you, you know, absolutely. But, but that is one of my one of my finest, well, one of my moments of playing at mm-hmm. the Saint as well. And so, um, it certainly is a place that holds near and dear to our heart, to my heart. And uh, you know. I, I hope that folks come out and and see this documentary and um, try to preserve some of the history that goes on with the Saint. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that, um, we're going to bring to a close this edition of Beyond the Headlines.
and have a great week. As we leave Beyond the Headlines this week, I want to give you, as we always do, an inspirational quote that you can ponder this week. This one is from Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, the former president of Morehouse College. It must be borne in mind that the tragedy of life does not lie in reaching your goal. The tragedy of life lies in having no goal to reach. Until next time, we'll see you on Beyond the Headlines. 